Hello, I'm Derek Walker. I'm the pastor of the Oxford Bible Church. Today I want to talk on a controversial subject, which is the status, the function of women in the church. Some say that the Bible excludes them from any kind of teaching, preaching, or leading. In other words, they can't have a position of ministry or, or authority over men. Uh, they say this is based on the creation ordinance revealed in Genesis, so that's where we need to start today. Later we'll look at the key New Testament passages on this subject, but basically it all boils down to Genesis to establish the point. So whatever God has to say on this issue should be clear from Genesis. In fact, Genesis 1, 2, and 3 lay the three key layers of revelation on the, the male-female issue. So let's go to Genesis chapter 1, and here it's very clear the essential equality of men and women in the image of God. Genesis 1.26, God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man, mankind, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And the way this is structured, it's very clear that both male and female were created in the image of God and they are treated as equal. And then God blessed them. He blessed them equally. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds, and every living thing that moves on the earth. In other words, they were both given dominion equally. By nature, therefore, men and women are equally in the image of God, fully equal in value and honor, dignity to God. Uh, they've both been given free will, you know, authority over their own lives. That's part of being in the image of God. And both have been given dominion over the earth and life on earth. Equally, there's no sense of difference there. They share the responsibility of caring and ruling over the earth. However, they weren't given authority to rule over each other, dominate each other's li personal life, because that would infringe their free will as being made in the image of God. And so this brings up an important point before we go any further, because the ultimate issue under discussion is authority. What authority is a woman allowed to have? Authority now is strong stuff. You have to understand it. God is the source of all authority, of course, all true authority, but he's delegated this authority to mankind in different ways. He's distributed it into certain well-defined areas of life, certain spheres of authority. These areas are called divine institutions. We've seen the first one already, free will. We all have an authority over our own life. But then there's marriage. That's within a, a husband and wife. There's family. That's the authority that parents have over their children. There's government, which is divided between uh, rulers and judges and police and so forth. Uh, th there's the authority in the workplace. There's the authority in the church. And these are all independent areas of authority. And it's essential to know the boundaries that each one of those have. Otherwise, it will be abused. For instance, a policeman has authority to enforce the law. But just because he's got authority in that area, that doesn't give him the right to tell you how to live. 
your life or how to bring up your family. You know, he only has authority if you're breaking the law. Uh, You know, he might disapprove of what you do, but he has no authority there. And so likewise, your boss has authority over your work life, but not over your personal life. And the most important authority, divine institution, is free will, which is given to all men and women equally. We all have, ultimately, the responsibility before God for our own life, for our own eternal destiny. We'll have to give account to God for ourselves, for our own life, and be judged accordingly. And therefore, we are to honor all men and women as beings in the image of God, and we are to respect their free will. That's why Ephesians 5.21 says, submitting to one another in the fear of God, being aware of God, being aware that they're made in the image of God, we respect that. Deliberate rejection of authority, uh, usurping true authority, is rebellion. And, And so when somebody's free will is dominated or manipulated, that's a manifestation of rebellion. That's why the Bible says that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. So, for example, a church leader has authority over the governing of the church, and and in teaching God's word, but he's not to abuse that by overriding people's free will and trying to control their personal lives. That would be witchcraft. That would be rebellion in a sense. And and these separate spheres of authority mean that in some situations, A is in authority over B, and in other situations, B is in authority over A. It depends on the circumstance. You know, it's not the case that one person will always have authority over another person in all situations. Because if that was the case, then the underling would be treated and classed as inferior, contradicting Genesis 1. It's vital, you see, that we understand the boundaries of each area of authority, or else it will be abused. For example, if the Bible speaks of a woman being under the authority of a man, we need to know what situations that applies to. You know, does it mean that all men have superiority over all women? Or is it a more limited application? Let's go to Genesis 2 now, because this gives more detail about the creation of male and female. You know, Genesis 1 emphasized the fundamental similarity. Genesis 2 brings out some differences. Let's read these verses in verse 7 onwards. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden and there he put the man whom he'd formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Notice God made the man first and gave him a job. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper 
comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man he made into a woman and he brought her to the man and Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. The first key difference that's emphasized here in the New Testament here is that, also in the New Testament, is that man was made first, and then the woman. He was made from the dust, then she was brought forth from his side, and brought to him, and then they were joined together in marriage. Now, in the light of Genesis 1, they are two equals. In other words, man, although he was made first, that doesn't mean he was an experiment that needed improving. Neither was he a gleaming archetype and, and woman some kind of lesser copy. Likewise, woman wasn't just an afterthought tacked on afterwards, nor was she an upgrade. They were equal, but different. There was an order in creation. Adam made first. That perhaps hints that he had some kind of authority over Eve. He received initial instructions from God that he was to be responsible to teach her. Uh, Eve was brought to Adam, not the other way around. Eve was a helper. It says comparable or suitable, perfectly fitted for Adam. Now, that doesn't mean she was inferior. In fact, this word helper in the Bible is most often used of God. God is the helper of his people. The Holy Spirit is our helper. So it doesn't mean inferiority at all. Um, she was his equal partner in the life and work God called them to do together. However, in Eve coming to Adam as his helper, again we see there was an order in the relationship, which hints at Adam being given some kind of authority in their marriage union. And this passage is all about their marriage. In fact, Genesis 2 reveals the second divine institution, the relationship of marriage between one man and one woman for life. This is the one thing obvious from Genesis 2. It's speaking of marriage. How does it finish? It talks about, therefore, he'll leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, one, become one flesh. The man and wife were not ashamed. It's all about marriage. That's the conclusion of the passage. It's not talking about the relationship between all men and all women. You know, but between a specific man and a specific woman, the husband and his wife. And so Genesis 2 reveals, yes, there are different roles, different responsibilities in marriage. Husband and wife are equal, but from the order of creation, God has entrusted the husband with the primary responsibility to provide leadership, loving leadership. But this does not give him the right to usurp her free will. So he doesn't have dominion over her, you know, the right to rule her like God gave him over the earth, over the animals. So Genesis 2 does not teach that all men have authority over all women in all situations. It does not say that the male gender has authority over the female gender because that would imply inferiority of women to men. It simply reveals the institution of marriage, how husband and wife are to complement each other. 
to extend the authority or headship that God gave the husband in marriage to all relationships between men and women is an abuse of delegated authority. It takes it well without, outside its bounds. And so this delegated authority between a man and a woman in marriage that's hinted at in Genesis 2 is also confirmed by the New Testament. But it, the New Testament does not confirm general authority of man over woman. For instance, 1 Peter 3.1 says, Wives, be submissive to your own husband. Not women be submissive to men. It says to your own husbands. Colossians 3.18, Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Ephesians 5.22, so Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. This, the language of these verses makes it clear it's, not teach, it's teaching wives to their husbands. It is not teaching all women are to submit to all men. That would be nonsense. It's limiting that authority that's based on Genesis 2 to the marriage relationship. You know, one reason why there's some confusion in this subject is that the word for man in the Greek is the same as the word for husband. And likewise, the word for woman is the same as the word for wife. And that means you have to discern from the context how to translate it as man or a husband. In these verses, it's clear it should be wives submit to your own husbands because of that phrase, your own. It's clearly talking about marriage and the translators have got it right. Ephesians 5.22 is, is a key one, isn't it? Wives submit to your own husband as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. Now, this could have been translated, the man is head of the woman, which would mean the male gender has authority over the female gender. That would clearly be wrong, because these verses are clearly talking about marriage. And so all the translations agree, wives, not women, submit to your own husbands. You know, because the husband, not the man, but the husband is the head of the wife, not man is the head of woman. And so the authority of man over woman that's hinted, of a man over a woman that's hinted in Genesis 2 is limited to the divine institution of marriage. It's not a universal thing. Now, I say that because I'm heading towards an interesting verse, 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3. In the New King James it says, the head of woman is man. That makes it sound like that men are always in authority over women. This is actually a parallel verse to Ephesians, and so it should have been translated the same way. In other words, the head of the, the wife is the husband. That's how it should be translated. Otherwise, it would mean all men are in authority over all women. That's uh, crazy. And, and other translations get it right. For instance, the Amplified, he says, Christ is the head of every man. The head of a woman is her husband. The Message Bible says, in a marriage relationship, there is authority from Christ to husband and from husband to wife. The English Standard Version says, the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband. Young's Literal says, the head of a woman is the husband. And that when, when you look at the Greek literally, that confirms this. It actually says this, the head of every man is Christ and the head of a woman is is the man, and the head of Christ is God. First of all, God the Father is the head of Jesus Christ, and they are equally God. So headship 
Although it may denote authority, it doesn't mean inferiority. Christ and God are equal. So man and woman are equal, husband and wife equal. But notice it says the head of every man is Christ. But it does not say the head of every woman is every man. He doesn't use that language. Rather it says the head of a woman is the man. Not man generally, but the specific man. The man of this woman is her husband. So it should read, the head of a wife is the husband. All right, so again we see that the New Testament confirms the creation ordinance of Genesis 2 applies to marriage, but it is not a universal male headship over all females. You can, perhaps, deduce safely a male headship in marriage from Genesis 2, but there's no way you can claim a universal male headship from it. If you could, then the New Testament surely would confirm it clearly, but it, all it does really is confirm that Genesis from Genesis 2 is that the husband is the head of his wife. So the teaching that the male gender is somehow over all the female gender and therefore women can never be an authority in, in the church, in society, this is not biblical. Um, it cannot be supported from Genesis 2 or the New Testament and it contradicts many other scriptures. There is nothing, therefore, in Genesis 2 that forbids women from having leadership positions in the church or in society. The most we could say, perhaps, is that since God at creation made men and women differently and gifted them differently to fulfill different roles in marriage, there may, might be a natural bias towards male authority in other situations so that perhaps men are a little bit more in authority than women. I've, I've got no problem with that. But ultimately, it's a case of the, the best person should be chosen for the job. And often the best person will be a woman. A parallel to this is that, yes, God has made men generally taller than women. Uh, but then on the other hand, many women are taller than many men. And, and so it is with authority. Many women are able to handle uh, authority, a lot, even a lot of authority in society and in the church. And if that's the way God's made them, then great. Those who say that women cannot preach or have leadership positions in the church, they base their argument ultimately on Genesis 2, saying it's God's created order. It's not subject to change. But if they're going to be consistent... If male authority over women is the general created order, then think about it. It would also be wrong to have for women to have any position of leadership over men in society or in the workplace. Uh, this is nonsense, of course. And this proves, again, that the created order of Genesis 2 can only apply to the institution of marriage, not to all situations with men and women involved. In other words, the husband is the head of the wife, but man is not the head of woman. Unfortunately, in many societies and churches, the male domination has come in, which has forbidden women from any role of public leadership or speaking. For example, in the Jewish society in the time of Jesus, it was like that. Women were treated as inferior. Um, they weren't allowed to even speak in the synagogue. To see why that has happened, we need to go now to Genesis chapter 3. 
which describes the fall of man into sin and the consequences. This is where the problem came in. This is where harmony was disrupted. In Genesis 2.17, God warned man. He said, in the day that you eat it, you will surely die. Dying you shall die. And when man sinned, he opened the door for Satan and the curse to come in, bringing in corruption, disruption of God's order, including relationships between man and woman, husband and wife. And then in Genesis 3, 14 to 19, God described prophetically the consequences of the curse that would come on nature, that would come on the human race, that would come on relationships. Verse 15 is very famous. It's called the Proto-Evangelium, where God announced the coming of the Messiah, the Redeemer, man's Redeemer from the curse. And God hinted in that prophecy that woman, particularly, would face great suffering through Satan. But eventually, she would get her own back, as it were, by bringing through woman, uniquely, the Messiah would come forth. He was the seed of the woman. Well, Genesis 3.15, God says, I'll put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, that's the Messiah, born of a virgin. He, Christ, shall crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That's what happened on the cross. Jesus was bruised. He took the poison of sin for us, but at the same time, he crushed Satan, his authority. He defeated the curse. Then in verse 16, it says, To the woman, he said, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, this describes the result of the fall on the loving marriage relationship that had been set up. Instead of the man providing loving leadership now, he rules, he dominates her. He treats her as his possession, as his inferior. As we've seen, that is not God's intention, his original intention for marriage. That's not God's will. It's the result of sin. It describes what life becomes under the curse. But that will be changed, you see, when the Messiah comes to set us free from the curse. And so this describes the battle of the sexes, disruption of the relationship between husband and wife, it, it, a corruption of the male authority in marriage, um, from a loving leadership that respects her free will to a dominion that rules and overrides her free will. In other words, this is a prediction that male authority will overreach its bounds and become abusive against women in denying them the freedom they should have. You see, he said, your, notice he says to the woman, your desire will be for your husband. Now that sounds like part of the curse is the sexual desire for the husband, but that can't be the meaning. In, in, for example, men are more known for their sexual desire anyway. The meaning of the word desire is from a parallel phrase in the next chapter. The, when the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Compare. Its desire is for you, but you shall rule over it. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. You see, Cain was warned that his sin nature, his sin desired to control him, but he should rule over it. So desire means desire to control. He says as part of the curse, the woman would try and control, manipulate her husband. But, on, but he would use his greater strength to rule her. 
And in, so in the battle of the sexes, on the whole, the woman would come off worse and male domination would become the norm. But that is not God's will. Now that Christ has come to redeem us from the curse. See, male domination is the result of the fall that affects marriage and other areas, causing women to be seen and treated as inferior. You see, but in Christ and his church, it should not be. And one aspect of this male domination that came in through the fall is that man overreaches his authority that God gave him for marriage into other areas, saying only men can be in authority in the church. Only men can teach. What if the police said, well, we've been entrusted with authority, therefore we will take charge in every situation, in the local golf club or wherever. That would be an abuse of authority. What if in the workplace men were automatically promoted over women, even though she'd be much more able to do the job? That would be abusive. But that's how women can be treated in churches. This is not obedience to the word of God. This is a manifestation of the fall. You know, I'm not women's lib. I'm not denying there are differences between men and women. I'm not denying that there's a headship in marriage. But I'm against applying it to all circumstances. Yes, the husband is to be the loving head of the wife. But man is not the head of woman. The male gender is not superior to the female gender. If God has called and equipped a woman to preach, teach, or lead in a certain area, who are we to deny her the right to exercise her ministry? You know, this is a really important subject because over half the church are women. And if we're holding them back because of a wrong interpretation of Scripture, we're guilty of doing great harm to the church and to the cause of Christ. Next time. We're going to continue with this important subject, this controversial subject. We're going to look at key passages in the New Testament that are based on Genesis.